Welcome to Divine Time with Melanie Bolick. Today's guest is Terry Thies of Massachusetts. Hi, Terry. How are you? Hi, Melanie. Very well. And you? I'm fantastic. Oh, good. Shining life is good. Oh, my so, God. I'm going so to have to wrap myself up to get to fantastic. I know, right? And and where are you calling from? Uh, right. I'm, I'm in a home in uh, historic Rosendale. Prestigious yeah. historic Rosendale. Exactly. I love Rosendale. I was just there the other night. And you, you should have said. I know. I was there on Tuesday night, okay. but I was only there briefly for dinner and sleep, and then I got up early to leave. I had to have pizza. Okay. Busy girl. Um, so tell me your wine story. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Of course, everyone's story is kind of interesting to himself. Mm. I got into wine through rock and roll, to be quite honest with you. It was... You know, I was a musician in high school and um, in my early years in college, and wine was just part of a rock star lifestyle. And, you know, there were songs about it. There was this electric flag blues song that was called Wine. Uh, I would see some of my rock idols swigging from bottles of wine on stage. Um, Rod Stewart used to do this thing where he would take a hit from a bottle of wine. It was usually Blue Nun. And then he would hand it to someone in the front row and then it would be passed along. And the last guy would pass it back up to Rod, who would then pantomime being incredibly pissed off that the bottle was empty. Uh -huh. so, you know, so I'm getting this meta message that wine is cool. Rock stars drink it. So, and I wanted to be one. Right. So even when I didn't want to be one anymore, you know, just wine became a steady but casual part of my life. And then... Um, at one point, I mean, we all have that bottle of the state, as it were, and get my wine education directly from the producers. Okay. So, you know, that kind of plunged that plunged me in. And uh, once in, I, I stayed very deeply plunged for, as most of us, for the first few years of my wine uh, freak outness, I was in of the Voice of America. Mm -hmm. And I liked being in Munich. Um, and so as soon as I had the opportunity, I went back. And needless to say, money ran out much quicker than I had budgeted for. My uh, then girlfriend, then wife, uh, and I got work as civilian components of the U.S. Army in Munich, which was one of the rare uh, outposts where those kinds of jobs were available. So, you know, we weren't making very much money, and we were basically just kind of treading water and the years would pass, and then we were finally kind of able to travel a little bit because we had a certain amount of disposable income. And the next thing you know, it's five years later. And, you know, I just loved, we loved being in Europe. And once I got into wine, I mean, you just could not pry me away at that point. And in fact, I needed to be pried away by the time I finally left in order to preserve that marriage, because she insisted on coming back to the U.S. We had been there nearly 10 years. So that's why. And I know okay. I said I was going to compress the story. That's okay. That is it's as compressed story, as I can make it. Yeah, it's a great story. I know yeah. it, it's really addictive to be in Europe and then come back here is hard. Reentry is always harder than, than uh, yeah. visiting, you know. Yeah, and it was. So you came back to the States and then what happens? I got a job in the wine industry um, in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm -hmm. And I had been writing articles for a, a magazine that doesn't exist anymore called the friends of wine or les amis du vin 
And they had uh, relationships with retailers in all the big cities in the U.S. who were also their sort of chapter directors. So uh, because I had a name from having published in the magazine, I reached out to some retailers in the D.C. area. One thing led to another. And the next thing you know, I was the uh, junior salesperson for a distributor who really didn't want to hire me and who were sort of forced to hire me because one of their big wine suppliers interceded on my behalf. So oh, it's so, so this is part of, you know, the Terry legend. I, I got the shit territory. I mean, they gave me all the accounts that either no one had ever called on or that they had been thrown out of. That's what happened in LA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me to be a, a far better salesperson than I ever thought I would be or could be. So that's how it started. And you know, and then eventually I, I realized, look, I've got this amazing credential uh, on all these wine producers in Germany whom I know very well mm -hmm. and, you know, whom I made friends with. And we were selling German wine at the time, but we were buying it from a, from an existing importer. Mm -hmm. So I went to the director of the company and I said, I can double our German wine sales and double the profit that we make on all of them. He said, what's the catch? And I said, you need to send me to Germany for a little while. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'll send you over for a week and you better be right. Mm -hmm. And, that, you know, and that's kind of how it all started. Right. And you know? then you started importing wine from Germany for this company? Yes, it started out from that for that company. And then I kind of bounced around because, you know, I was star-crossed in some respects. That company was bought by another company who weren't interested in the business that I was doing. Mm -hmm. I went to another company who didn't have the cash flow to run the business that I was doing. Uh, and so then I went to a company who did have the cash flow to run the business that I was doing, and I was doing pretty well. Um, but then that company was bought by another company, and this whole kind of, you know, sour history repeated itself. till so I finally got signed on with the Skernicks, uh, whom I was supplying in those days. And, you know, that began a 20-year relationship. Oh, wow. And uh, most of those years were fantastically successful. I mean, we were really at a magnificent synergy. Business grew. Um, you know, I ascended the lofty peaks of wine superstardom, he said laughing. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And so well I, I liken winemakers or wine people to to rock stars anyway. So there you go. Okay. Um but so with the Skernics, what did you do? Did you start an importer or well at, at the at that point I was sort of like a wholly owned subsidiary a subsidiary of Skernick. Um, the way the relationship was set up was I actually was an employee of Michael Skernick Wines, mm -hmm. but I, I was importing at that point, German and Austrian wines. Mm -hmm. And I began doing, um, small producer champagnes, uh, about which the Skernicks were extremely skeptical and, uh, which then turned out to be a, a rip roaring success and was ultimately the motor that ran the whole business, mm -hmm. um, and so it was, you know, like I say, it was a great synergy. I was the, you know, I was the guy who selected the wines. I was the marquee name in the portfolio. I wrote my legendary catalogs. Uh, it just was really good. You know, yeah. it just was really good. And those were, um, those were the final 20 years of my profession until I kind of semi-retired. And that child and his mother, my ex-wife, remained in the DC area. So I did too. Right. And because I wasn't going to bail on the boy. Mm -hmm. And then at the point that that relationship, my working from remove was working so well mm -hmm. that when I left the DC area, I came up here to Boston. And 
you know, I was kind of like the original work from home guy before it became trendy. Right. And then I was really good. I mean, you know, there was, there was never any pressure to, you know, to move to New York and, and work in that office. It wouldn't have, sure. it wouldn't have produced better work. It right. just would have flushed my quality of life down the toilet, basically. Right. So no disrespect to New York contender. Of course. And it's very expensive. It's a, it's a, it's a rat race, as we say. And so, um, you know what the problem you know, is with the rat race, what's that? this is a Lily Tomlin line. The problem with the rat race is even if you win it, you're still a rat. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and New York to boot. So, mm. so I, I always say this with different types of wines that I like, like I worked for master chef from Alsace and Marvin mm. Square for many years and I love Alsatian wine. And, you know, it's a hard sell. And I talk to people in the wine business and they're like, you know, we all love Alsatian wines. But yeah, nobody can tell. Does you do have a similar experience with Riesling? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at one point when I was being interviewed by uh, Food and Wine Magazine, for whom I was importer of the year one year, um, they asked me, Richard Nally was the guy that conducted the interview. And the first question that he asked me was, how does it feel to have perennially unpopular taste? And I said, just lucky, I guess. Right. And he said, well, that, we can close the interview right now because you just said it all. You know, I mean, yeah, I had unpopular taste. It was just part of my life. I mean, it got to a point where I wasn't even really aware of it any longer. It was just, you know, you build up a certain muscles pushing the same rock up the same hill again and again. Right. If I had been working in popular categories, I would have had a zillion more competitors. Right. And uh, as it was with... German wine and Austrian wine and champagne as well. You know, you you get to a point where you have a, a really nice kind of you squared the circle between doing work that you love and that is is passionate and fueling for you mm -hmm. and do and making enough of a living that you know you just figure who's luckier than me. Right. You know, I had enough. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I wasn't making bucket loads of money, but I didn't need to be making bucket loads of money. I had an incredible amount of joy and meaning in my life. I was worth more than any, you know, amount of dollars I might have been able to eke out of all this. So yeah, uh, I worked in unpopular categories. It just, it just became, you know, part of my life. I mean, sales involves advocacy anyway. Uh, and I was advocating not only for my particular wines and, and producers, but I was advocating for the categories, which meant that I was also advocating for a sensibility that would appreciate those categories. And, and talk to me about Riesling. Well, Riesling is the, the non-plus ultra. It's the ultimate grape variety. It'll spoil you for any others. And because it was my my first exposure and became my first love, in effect, you could say it spoiled me for, for most other great varieties, but it also trained me, I would say, to appreciate the right things about wine, uh, to appreciate clarity, transparency, gracefulness, um, to appreciate the quality of flavor as opposed to the impact of flavor, uh, to appreciate beauty instead of you know, brute strength. And so that was, you know, you really don't know which is the cart and which is the horse. Right. Did I appreciate Riesling because I was sort of pre-equipped 
to appreciate that kind of wine? Or did that wine lead me into a sensibility where in it became what I appreciated about all wines? And who knows? I mean, probably the answer is, yeah, both and. Sure. And so for the novice wine drinker, if you were going to explain Riesling, because mm -hmm. there's a spectrum that goes mm -hmm. from dry to... Yeah, exactly. Uh, did you, by the way, did you see Letty Teague's uh, piece in Friday's Wall Street Journal? She did a piece on dry Riesling. And, you know, said again for the umpteenth time that this has had to be said that the majority, the overwhelming majority of Rieslings are now dry wines. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest myth about Riesling is that it is a uh, fruity or flowery wine. Whereas, in fact, Riesling is a minerally wine. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we don't like to use that mineral word because it's been sort of conflated with a kind of an obtuse insistence that it's actual minerals that are being upticked up through the root system. I don't believe that at all. No. Um, but what I do think is there is a tremendous volume of flavor that, you know, isn't animal or vegetable or fruit or flower or spice or herbs or any of those things. So then what is it? And, you know, tasters will spontaneously arrive at uh, phrases like wet stones or crushed rocks or something. So I don't, it's probably not mineral, but mineral is a really charming metaphor for mm -hmm. that phenomenon that all of us have tasted. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very good word. If it's not mineral, it might as well be. So I think if you approach Riesling, knowing that, you know, you sometimes you will taste fruit, sometimes you will smell flowers, sometimes all of that will be present, but fundamental to Riesling is that it is a mineral wine. And so in that sense, it's going to be the kind of great variety that asks questions rather than spoon feed you answers. I mean, if you're talking about a fruity wine and you're trying to figure out what it tastes like, that's not a very hard task. It's either peaches or nectarines or apricots or apples or pears or what have you. And then you kind of rummage your palate around. Um, but when you're talking about mineral or wet rocks or crushed stones, you have the first thing that happens is you can't fathom how these flavors can get into a wine. Sure. So the first thing that's happening is you're full of questions and questions are way better than answers. You know, this better than anybody. I mean, questions just keep leading you on mm -hmm. a good question leads to a better question, a more mysterious question. And the next thing you know, this, your curiosity is just incandescent. Mm -hmm. Whereas a wine that tastes like apples, once you nailed it, that's it. Okay. No more curiosity. I figured out what this wine tastes like. Next, please. Right. And so just for, again, going back to novice, like I, I don't know anything about wine. Pretend I don't okay. know anything about wine. So if, okay. I'm, if I'm producing dry Riesling, where mm. will that come from? Will it come from the mountains? Will it get its acidity from the, the altitudes? Or will it come from a particular type of soil? Or explain that to me. Dry Riesling can come from any kind of soil. Mm -hmm. um, it won't. The best examples of dry Riesling, honestly, the best examples of any Riesling, mm -hmm. tend to come from poor soils in cool climates. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of the reasons, for example, that the Finger Lakes is a is a very useful source for it now. Uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, for example, uh, the cooler climates in Washington State. Sure. Um, and then, of course, the Old World. And notwithstanding climate change, Riesling is a variety that needs a long time to ripen. And probably of all the major grape varieties, it needs the longest time to ripen. They say that the ideal is 110 days between flowering and harvesting. 
And that's much longer than any other variety. At the point that the Riesling harvest begins, the harvest for nearly every other grape variety is either in full swing or has concluded. Right. And that produces in Riesling because it reaches its, its uh, sort of the apex of its ripening process late in the season when the weather is cool. It's the reason that Riesling has more acidity than most other grape varieties. And acidity is, you know, people think acid, well, batteries or uh, acidity acid provides freshness. You know, right. it provides freshness, and 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 uh, and that's you know another thing that's really lovely about Riesling. It's not fatiguing. Generally speaking, doesn't have very high alcohol, especially the sweeter varieties. And so, what's to know about Riesling? As I said, it. I mean, it will just it will spoil you. Um, it has a distinctive petrol nose. So it was my. It was the grape that I had to do for my test for my WSC. Ah. So easy. I was like, man, you've got to give me something harder than this because the nose is very distinct. So it doesn't have a floral nose really per se. But it, it doesn't always, you know, the petrol nose yeah. uh, is, is, a, is a complicated terpene. Uh, it tends to be a characteristic of Rieslings from warm vintages and or from uh, vintages with insufficient rainfall. And it will come on when the wines are like 10 months old or so. And it usually lasts until they're about three or four years old and then disappears again. Right. It's replaced by a whole other host of kind of aldehydes. Um, but, you know, if people want to associate petrol with Riesling, why not? I, I personally dispute it, but anything that helps someone feel comfortable with this wine or for that matter, anyone is always a good thing. Sure, sure. And so what are your thoughts on organics? And I don't know, how are your feelings? I know in Alsace, they predominantly are sustainably producing grapes because it's cost effective and they have a really good environment that's not too damp. Yeah. Um, I mean, but what are your thoughts? On well, I've kind of got two answers. I mean, I think it would be a better world if, if all viticulture was organic. Um, for that matter, it would be a better world if all agriculture was organic. Mm -hmm. That's the answer I would give as a, just a citizen, as a human being. Mm -hmm. As a wine merchant, I had a very strong, uh, a, a very strong principle that it would be arrogant for me to dictate to my wine producers who have to support a family that they need to live up to my standards. It felt both arrogant and precious. Mm -hmm. Every step, every step they took in an organic direction was one that I applauded. I encouraged them all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I let them know I thought it was wonderful that they were doing this, but I never wagged my finger at them and told them that they should. Yeah, I just it just doesn't it didn't work. Now the now I am wagging my finger at them yeah, and yeah, yeah. them and they need to get rid of these stupid heavy bottles. Oh, especially okay. especially the organic producers. Mm -hmm. Connect the dots, people. Right. You know, this and nobody nobody likes these stupid heavy bottles anymore, especially people who have to lift them. Mm-hmm. And, and glasses becoming more and more expensive. But mm -hmm. I, I think that what we like to say through the show, my, my, I have an online show called Vine Time TV, which is all about wine and all about food and wine pairing and whatnot, is we try to explore um, responsibly produced wine in that, you know, every single vineyard is different. Every single farm is different. Every single terroir is different. And some people have to use pesticides because they don't have a choice. Uh, right. Some people sparingly use them. And those are the people that we appreciate. Um, we will cer certainly champion people who can do things all organically and all biodynamically, like some of the growers I know in Champagne, um, because we know it's a really difficult thing in certain places like Champagne. Yes. 
Um, yeah, but- and you know, it's it, it's it's both that. Uh, for example, I mean, the, the, the battle tends to come to a halt when it comes to botrytocides or fungicides. Mm-hmm. But there's another element that people don't often consider. If you have, if you are a small producer, let's say with seven acres, mm-hmm. and those seven acres or three and a half hectare are divided into 45 or 50 different little parcels, each one the size of a tennis court, then how are you going to be able to function organically? And even if you could, even if you decided that you wanted to do it, the people around you might not be working organically. And then you're going to get, you know, then you're going to get the the stuff that they're spraying wafting over into your vineyard. And so it tends, you know, in, in very steep slopes, in a production culture like the Mosul, which is micro-parcelated, it tends to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's another thing that needs to be uh, in, that needs to be taken into account. So again, you know, my feeling is um, it's slow work takes time, mm-hmm. and the progression out of conventional viticulture into organic viticulture is going to be easier and quicker in some places and harder and slower in others. And the only thing I think that we can do is urge it along, you know? I appreciate those that responsibly produce wine as much as mm-hmm. possible. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And the question, you know, the question a lot of people ask, and you haven't asked it, and I am thankful that you haven't, is people very often ask, is organic wine better? And I say, it's the wrong question. Well, and you know, I have, better friend, or worse. I have a friend well, who's been in the wine business for probably about 50 or 60 years. Okay. She, she is of the opinion that it is better. She's tasted organic wine and she's tasted better wine. And there is no difference mm-hmm. in the flavor. Um, I'm not of the same opinion. Um, yeah. But, you know, and, and I've also tasted wine that is organic, that is good and bad. And I've tasted, you know, wine that is not organic, that is good and bad. Um, but what do you think? Well, I, I think that uh, a conscience in that sense of, of, of um, how you grow grapes Um, is probably going to be part of a larger conscience that conduces to the production of excellent wine. But it's, uh, it's doesn't necessarily, it's a, it's correspondence. It's not necessarily a causality, but I would say all things being equal, the chances are that someone working organically or biodynamically who cares enough to do that will care enough to make excellent wine. The other thing, of course, the other piece of it is particularly the biodynamic producer has an, an intimacy of relationship with his or her vineyards. Mm-hmm. And that intimacy of relationship is going to come out in the wine in some way, shape or form. I mean, you have occasional outliers, of course, who you know grow biodynamically and honestly make pretty yucky wine. But I think they're the exception that proves the rule. And they're pretty conspicuous exceptions and I'm not gonna name names, but we all know who they are. Okay, there you go, fair enough. And so I ask all of my guests this, what do you love? <laughs> what do I love? I love many things in no particular order. Poetry, baseball, uh, walks in nature, love moving around. Mm-hmm. Um, I love music. I love music incredibly deeply. Mm-hmm. And I love conversation. I love intimacy. I'm kind of a intimacy junkie. Mm-hmm. And I love food, obviously, and I've got the girth to prove it. And uh, and obviously, I love wine. Right. You know. And so, um, where will people find you if they want to find your writings or 
you on social media anywhere? Well, I have two books and they'll find those books wherever books are sold. Uh, If you go to bookshop.org, which is my preferred method for buying books, Mm -hmm. just plug my name in and both of the books will, one hopes both of the books will come up. Right. My website is easy. You know, my website is easy. It's just terrythees.com. Nice. So yeah, please. The books are about? Well, the books are about wine. And the first one is called Reading Between the Wines. Yep. And the second one is called What Makes a Wine Worth Drinking. And so what the books are not, they are not part of the wine simplification industry, and they're not guides, and they're not uh, consumer guides for which wines should you buy. But what they are, rather, is stepping back and looking at first principles and asking, and then I hope answering the question, which wines should you love and why? Right. Fantastic. Yeah. And so getting back to your loves, I'm going to yes. ask you for your song because everybody gets to pick a song here on the Vine Time podcast. So what is your song today? A song? Yes. Oh, God. I'm completely unprepared for that question. Um, okay. This is just, I'm just plucking it, honestly, out of thin air. Mm-hmm. And it's almost gothic by, I think, it's Donald Fagan, or it might be Steely Dan. Oh, okay. All right. I will find it. You will. So here, here is your song. Thank you very much. You're and welcome. have a wonderful day, Terry. Thanks for coming. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having me. And extend. look me up next time you come to Rosie. Working on
will indeed. Hang on. <laughs>